Hey, Philogy and Tears, those of us who like our spirituality with a twist. In this episode, we continue with part two of our discussion with Guy Newland as he shares his erudition, insight, and also his sense of humor. Professor Newland is an expert in Tibetan Buddhist philosophy, having studied it for 40 years with many of the most notable scholars of the Buddhist tantric tradition. His books include The Two Truths, a deep exploration to how the school of the Dalai Lamas understands ultimate conventional realities. Introduction to Emptiness, a great book on this complex subject for a more general audience, and A Buddhist Grief Observed, a much more personal work and account of his own experience coping with death, loss, and grief. Finally, Guy is also a noted editor and translator, especially known for his work on the great treatise on the stages of the path to enlightenment, one of the master works of Tsongkhapa, founder of the school of the Dalai Lamas. He is currently at work on an anthology of Tibetan Madhyamaka philosophy texts for the Library of Tibetan Classics. He's been a professor at Central Michigan University since 1988. In the second episode of the series, Guy offers a sort of G&T crash course on one of the most quintessential concepts of tantric Buddhism, emptiness. He first shares the insight that understanding how things don't really have the fixed nature our mind imposes on them is one of the keys to really helping others with kindness and compassion. Then he outlines all the important points of tantric Buddhist thought, impermanence, dependent origination, designation, superimposition, illusion-like appearance, and the whole rest of the Buddhist usual suspects. Along the way, we talk about conventional and ultimate radio, collapsing tables, the English letter A and the Sanskrit letter H, the matrix and the red pill, and the farmer and philosopher parts of our minds. Everything you have always wanted to know about tantric Buddhist philosophy but were afraid to ask? Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Jin and Tantra, spirituality with a twist. The podcast that takes Tantrism, Buddhism, Taoism, Sufism, Kabbalism, Shamanism, Chinese medicineism, <laughs> and all of the other isms we've been influenced by, and blends them into a tall, crisp, cool cocktail. Your spirit has been longing for. Now, isn't that refreshing? I want you to get together. So it seemed to me that the, the you know, I kind of thought, well, there's a couple of levels to do this with. I think your uh, professional expertise is in Tsongkhapa, who is mm-hmm. sort of the founder of the School of the Dalai Lamas and a deep yeah. thinker on this concept of shunyata emptiness. Mm-hmm. And so I thought we'd do Hard to do it justice in the amount of time that we have, but we yeah. thought I'd ask you for a little crash course explanation for this. Um, I happen to really like your concept of ultimate and conventional radio and uh-huh. the two truths. So if that gets worked in there too, I think that would be awesome. But yeah. I guess I'll throw it over to you, Guy, and kind of say, what do you say to people when you're trying to make this a little bit understandable for people? Maybe Danny and I were bouncing occasionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one thing I've I've um I've learned by giving talks like this quite a lot is not to say things like shunyata or even emptiness. <laughs> because because it's like emptiness is an accurate translation of shunyata, but it's not necessarily um, um, 
it becomes like a thing that then people worry about and, and latch onto and mm -hmm. struggle to understand as distinct from trying to understand how the world is. <laughs> if you're actually trying to understand how the world is and how it works, and if you, you, you analyze this in a deep enough way, the, the idea is that you should understand that things are devoid of any fixed nature of having to, you know, always be like this or that, right? And, 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 and if you just think about it like that, it was like, oh, well, there's this word emptiness. And they use it to talk about how nothing has this kind of locked in quality of having to be however, however it appears right now. So I try, I try to, I've just like found, you know, it's like, here's Nolan's expert on emptiness. He's coming to talk about emptiness. And it's like, oh, now the big obstacle is everybody has this concept of emptiness and they're worried about that there's this new thing in addition to how the world exists <laughs> that they're gonna have to understand, right? They've understood some things about Buddhism or they wouldn't be at the talk, but there's this profound, mysterious extra thing, right? And that's not what's supposed to be at all. The um, word emptiness is kind of a funny one in English too, and probably in every yeah. language, you know, it's interesting. In Chinese, they use this xu, shu, which yeah. is the same word in Chinese medicine that we use for a bunch of pathologies that mean you don't have enough of something. Right, right. <laughs> so it has a weird kind of almost negative connotation, even though it's probably semantically correct. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, it is. That's right. It's a lack or an absence. Well, anyway, the, the generally the way I like to talk, and I guess you've heard me, you know, give talks recently. My, my current way of talking about these things is that we want to try in the world to be kind to one another. We want to uh, connect to one another as human beings and, and generate a disposition to care for one another. And to some extent, we, we, have, the, we have that disposition, but it's, it's, it's uh, tangled up with layers of fear and ego. And what we wanna do is strengthen that disposition toward kindness and, and um, you know, practice practice having um, um, good intentions, which we follow through on in terms of how we treat others. And then the, the next thing, you know, is to be effective in that. Like there are quite a few people who do seem to have good intentions and they just take that as sufficient such that they're very clumsy and, and actually cause harm with, and then are resentful when people aren't appreciative of their efforts to be helpful. So if you really wanna be kind, the next thing you have to do is figure out to, how to be an effective helper of others, okay? And the idea in this tradition is that everybody is suffering needlessly because we don't see things as they are or, and don't see ourselves as we are. And in fact, there's this like deep delusion that exaggerates how real things are. And that this, this delusion is like the growth medium for our greed and hatred and anger and fear in our relations with other beings. So of course, you know, you can do specific things to try to lessen your greed or your anger or your fear, but at the root of it, there's this deluded idea about how real or how it is that all of these things exist. And if, you know, if you can undermine this fundamental delusion that makes it seem that things are really solidly, objectively, independently, concretely, you know, there and essentially whatever it is they appear to you to be, 
then if you can undermine that, and it just softens up people's uh, ways of interacting each with each other. Because they're not like locked in to a view that you are X. <laughs> because of like, well, no, whatever, you're, you're, we're, we're processes. Everything is constantly changing and moving. And so I think of emptiness as like, um, and then this is in the Tsongkhapa way, right? I think of emptiness as, um, you know, the lack of uh, bars on the window, the lack of, uh, of a ceiling between us and the sky, or a, a lack of uh, cholesterol of being in the arteries of reality. It's like everything can flow. Why? Because there's nothing clogging it up and, and forcing it to just stay as whatever it is, it, it, you know, we're, we're conceptually, you know, ascribing it to be at a certain moment. Yeah. Even from like a clinical point of view, it's interesting because, you know, there's a whole concept of like clinical resistance. And part of that is people have this idea that I'm like a certain way. So, you know, Daniel mm -hmm. and I doing our work, we could be talking uh, to a patient and they'll be like, no, I can't change this thing. This is just how I am. Who and I am. Like, no, yeah. that may not be the case. <laughs> Look at that again. Yes, exactly. It is like that. Um, there, there, are, there is a way, if roughly, that people are, which you know, people have personalities. So, but what that, that doesn't mean that they're essentially fixed. <laughs> I mean, my person, I have a personality, but it's evolved, it's moved, it's a moving thing. It's not like always exactly the same, right? If, if, if my personality were my fixed essential nature, it could never change. Yeah, and it's so, right. The clinical resistance comes from this that you're describing is a, a reification of something that is, you know, a personal identity, but it's been frozen as though that's like, you know, something that can't move or change. In fact, stuff is going to change anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's just we have this idea that fixes things in place. Um, so to be effectively kind, you 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 um, you have to have some sort of ability to to see that things are, are open. This is like if some people have tried using words like openness or transparency, you know, to talk about emptiness because um, imp they're implicitly negations. Do you see what I'm saying? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. means not closed, not blocked up, not stopped, right? Or transparency means, you know, <laughs> lacking in opacity to use the word that's in the news right now. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the same thing. If you see that things aren't rigidly locked into having to be a certain way, then it gives you a tool in working with other people and perhaps you know, teaching other people. Um, and then it's not enough just to see that things are open. You wanna be able to uh, make practical distinctions you know, at the conventional level about how to take care of people, you know, how Chinese medicine works or you know, how to, to fix a car or, right? There's all kinds of practical wisdom, like how to write a good condolence note or a good thank you note. Or it's like, there's all kinds of practical things if we wanna care for other people that it's useful to learn. And one of those things, one of those things is understanding how everything is, right? And that's, that's how I see emptiness is fitting into this. It's a way of, um, helping us become more effectively kind, because that's the really the important thing.
if we we can't be effectively kind if effectively kind if we're we're locking in certain essential identities or realities about ourselves and about the people we're working with. Um, yeah, that's, really that's how I think of it nowadays. So you can think about it in terms of impermanence or dependent arising, and and in that way, you know, talk about how these things don't just exist in and of themselves, but they arise and change in the basis of causes and conditions, all of which are changing all the time. And, and in that way, you can ease people toward the sense that there isn't any sort of fixed essence that's there in and of itself. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's what I've been trying to do lately. Of course, it's, you know, lots of Buddhists teach dependent arising without really having this concept of emptiness. Um, they think that, you know, a cause can give rise to an effect because it has a certain nature that allows it to work as the effect, but still it goes in the right direction. Hey guy, if you could, um, just because some of our audience are, are relative with some of the, some of these terms are maybe relatively, they're maybe unfamiliar with, if you could just say uh, just for a moment on impermanence, impermanence and um, on dependent arising, just to kind of, so that yeah, impermanence means, um, well, it means two things. One, is that things fall apart. Like one time I went into the classroom and sat on a table that had been there for a long time and uh, it disintegrated into a pile of debris because that was just the expiration date for that table. And like that, our, our lives, our bodies, you know, sooner our country, the United States will someday no longer exist, which is something we don't usually think about, but it's an impermanent phenomenon. So it has an expiration date. We just don't know what it is. So everything will, that arises in time breaks sooner or later. Then in, in addition to that, there's the fact that everything is changing instant, instantaneously. Like we could say moment by moment, but we can't even pin down how fast these moments are. So if we look at a river flowing, there's nothing for us to fix our eyes on because it's like something, if it's fast enough, there's, it's something different every single second or microsecond. Mm -hmm. We don't know where, to what, what the shape of the river is because it's it's different every every instant or a flame is the same thing so flames and and, and fast flowing rivers like show uh what we call momentary impermanence that things are changing faster than we can even see or notice and everything is like that like the the everything's changing like that it's just that most things don't disclose that to us like the table that I have my laptop sitting on is changing all the time just like the one that I <laughs> just the way the one I sat on and it broke into dust it didn't just it wasn't like exactly the same you know for 40 years and then one day it was a pile of dust it was constantly changing in an invisible way right that people weren't noticing mm. right and and getting ready to be no longer a table and that's, that's what's happening right now. Like our, our minds are changing instant by instant, right? Which would, if we watch them, we can notice, right? And our bodies are changing all the time, right? And um, so this is like momentary impermanence. It's hard to grasp uh, onto things. At, and when we when grasp onto things as that it is this or that, we're trying to freeze time and time doesn't ever freeze. Everything keeps changing constantly. Okay, so this is, this is impermanence. 
And if you think about imper impermanence is a really important idea in Buddhism because everybody can understand that things are changing <laughs> mm -hmm. all the time and that we're going to die someday. And if you really understand this, it leads you in the direction of understanding that, you know, the most profound reality, that things don't have any essential objective reality at all because they don't objectively exist as this or that because they're constantly changing into something else every instant. Um, and then dependent arising is the idea that, uh, that Buddha taught that this arises in dependence on that. That's what Buddha, how Buddha taught it. This arises in dependence on that. So in, you know, this is X and that is Y. So, you know, X arises in dependence on Y. So it doesn't say one thing, it's a little different from saying one thing arises in dependence on another, because it's not a question of that, there's one thing and then there's some objectively other thing. It's just anything you can name or point at or think of, it, it appears in dependence on causes and conditions, right? That were there before. And um, so things don't have their own way of setting themselves up. Like if you see something really amazing, you know, uh, like uh, my daughter just sent me a picture of a volcano and it's like, it just looks, you know, immense volcano and it just sort of looks like it's just there. But of course, it's not just there. It, it came about gradually due to certain causes and conditions and someday it won't be there at all, you know, right? So th everything that we can think of, you know, and point at in, in time depends upon certain circumstances in order to be and rather than existing in itself. Like if you see a, a really impressive school building, Lama Yeshe gives this example. I think, um, you know, it's hard. It's like emptiness is this like seems difficult conceptually, but whenever you look at things, you can think, well, how did that get to be there? Well, like if, if there's a university and then there's a school there, it's like, well, it's not just that there had to be a lot of people to put bricks in certain places. There had to be people who raised money and then there had to be people who conceived an education system where this would be the kind of thing that would go on. It's like the number of uh, cause and conditions that are necessary for that to be there, you know, just like spreads out farther and farther. And you can see that it's like, oh, initially in our mind, it's just like, there's a table, there's a university, there's a volcano. But behind that, there's like this vast genealogy of causing conditions without which that would never exist. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it and he's like, picks up a paper and he says, there's a cloud in this piece of paper. He's just, you know, blowing people's mind. This is a burning <laughs> clouds, then there isn't any rain or any rain. There's no trees, no trees, there's no wood, wood, no wood, there's no paper. And so in that, you know, poetically he's saying, there's a cloud right here in this piece of paper. It's like not separate from the piece mm. of paper. And basically, if you look at Walt Whitman's um, song, um, song of Myself in Leaves of Grass, he, he understood this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He figured it out on his own. There's kind of like the two parts. One is the, the stream over time of causes and conditions. And the other part is everything is made up of the component parts that kind of like make it up. 
So, you know, for me, is it like studying the, like I had to study the body as a medical person. And at a certain point, you're kind of like, well, which one of these is the core thing of the body? And you start to realize all these things depend upon one another Mm -hmm. and all these parts are together to make up this physical thing we call the body. So there's the kind of the component part aspect, I guess, too, right? Right. Yeah. All the different parts that make something up. So when you talk about dependent arising, there's three ways, right? And one is the cause Buddha's original thing is like for every, for this arising dependence on that, but then things that anything that has extension in space or time, uh, depends upon parts. You can, you can break it down into its parts and say, you know, it's like, can't be a car except in dependence upon all of these different car parts. And then you start thinking about it, it's like, well, none of, none of these car parts is a car. Yeah. It's like none of the organs in the body is the yeah. body, mm-hmm. right? So where is the body then? <laughs> it's like, it's like there's a part of our mind that thinks, it's like a car is objectively there, there should be some part inside it that makes it a car. <laughs> and that, if you can, if you can, you can see it, feel that part of your mind it feels that there must be something in there at the, you know, at the end of my finger that makes this collection of stuff, right? A car from its own side. Then you're getting kind of into the thing of identifying your own delusion. That's the, the mind that feels it. Oh, there must be some part in there that makes it a car, right? No, there isn't. And you know there isn't when you stop to think about it. But there's a part of your mind before you analyze that feels like there ought to be. I do it with my students and like I, I wrote, write a letter. Oh, this actually is in um, Jeffrey Hopkins book, The Tantric Distinction. I, I do it in class all the time is like write a letter up on the board. And then I go and sit in the, in the class with the students. And I say like, well, you know, we're just passively here receiving the information that's being broadcast from the board, you know, down towards us as the letter A or something like that. And it's like, yeah, but there isn't any, there's just these chalk marks and there's this line and there's this line and there's this line and none of those lines is the letter A. So where does that letter A come from? It comes from us going one, two, three, A, right? And that, so that's the third kind of dependent arising. Holes depend on parts, effects depend on causes. And everything depends upon being designated as this or that relative to the perspective of some kind of mind for which it can I, That's the subtle meaning of dependent arising. Yeah, I teach a class on, uh, you know, like physics for Chinese medical students. I, you know, I got that gig. And I'll draw uh-huh. like the A on oh, the yeah, board. Oh, yeah, because physics background. Yeah. Yeah, I draw the A on the board and then I draw like, okay, that looks like an A to all of us. It's hard to like not see it as an A. You don't see it as like three lines in the thing. You just, poof, your mind just automatically says A. Right. If you draw like the letter hum or something, an English speaker goes, I don't even think it, like it's so complicated looking. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you're like, you That's don't even nothing. see it as a Why letter. It's nothing. Stop <laughs> scribbling. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like somebody scribbled up there. Yeah. It looks beautiful, but like you wouldn't even say it's a letter. <laughs> yeah it's yeah a, no that's right yeah. it looks like it's a letter a objectively from its own side right um so it is a letter this is the thing it is a letter a but it's a letter a independence upon our perspective right and what is pr- kind of easy to understand that you can go back and you can sit there in the classroom looking at the letter a 
you can flip back and forth in your mind between the point of view from which you feel the letter A is out there and you're just passively receiving the information. And then the point of view from which you can understand that there isn't any objective letter A, but you're just ascribing together with other people, this identity A to that, those marks because it's useful to do so. And you can flip back and forth between those. Pretty, anybody can really pretty easily. But then you have to say, well, it's like that with everything. It's not just like that with the letter A, it's like that with mountains. Okay, so who cares about mountains? It's like that with people, mm. right? It's, it's yeah. like that with me, right? I am a person, but I'm not a person who exists in the way I ordinarily like grasp or conceive myself as existing, right? I exist as something designated in a relationship to an ever-changing collection of mental and physical parts. So what I really love about the Tibetan way of doing this, and Tsongkhapa was my person for this, you know, is that he really takes this apart. He really says, you know, if you look at it, you have these sensory experiences of the world. And so you're kind of like, you're experiencing your senses as they take in the world, but that's that, you know, kind of thing, you know, that's your mind creating some stuff and you experience your own internal world, right? And that's yeah. something you're experiencing. Um, so your mind is always playing in this way <laughs> with the phenomenon around it. And he like takes it apart. And then he does something really interesting, like with the letter A, that's a, a conventional or societal aspect, you know? Right. And that yes. one's not super emotional, but sometimes when I'm in the classroom talking about this, I say, well, you know, the letter A is like the mountain. Maybe you don't feel too strongly about that. If we change the way that look, you wouldn't right. care too much. Right, right. But take the things that you take kind of more seriously in the in, around you. And you see like, those are kind of projections of your mind too. Right. The way you think about your life, the way you think about, you know, maybe your relationships, like the rules in which a society kind of functions are kind of dependent originations too. And they're like, you know, yeah. so they have a truthiness to them because that's the truth for that group of people. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and we have emotional connections to those things too. Now the emotions get a little bit more involved in an interesting way, you know? Um, and, you know, you can feel it. Oh, this is a little bit of a deeper idea than maybe what you initially thought because my emotions are really affected by how I think about these things. Yeah, that's right. So there's two things that, that get mixed up a lot here. And one is the, the part of my mind that goes one, two, three, A, and, and, and correctly in terms of the societal practice here makes the designation or ascription uh, that those marks are an A, right? And there's the other thing, which is the stupid part of my mind that thinks that I don't have to ascribe that as an A because it is an A. <laughs> Those are two different things, right? Yeah. So, you know, one we usually is, is called designation in English translations. Things are conventionally designated or the foundation for the preservation of the Mahayana tradition is uses labeled, but, you know, designated, labeled, they're ascribed a certain identity. And as long as we're doing it in accordance with the conventions, right, then it's correct. You know, what we does for, for this to be a table means that it's been appropriately designated as a table relative to our point of view. That's not the problem. The problem is thinking that it doesn't need to be designated as a table because it already is one naturally, right, from its own side. And that we call superimposition. So superimposition and designation are not the same thing. It's like inevitable that everything is going to be designated as this or that relative to a certain perspective, the 
that observes it. And that's how things exist conventionally. That's how things are. And then there's the fact that we don't think that's how things are. And we superimpose upon them uh, a status whereby they don't need to be designated because they're naturally objective, this or that from their own side. Yeah. So I feel like in Sankapa, he's trying to do like, he's trying to do many things, <laughs> but obviously a couple of things he's doing. And I think you capture it in your conventional radio, ultimate radio kind of thing where it's funny to me, cause I think you go the conventional radio, there's a show on NPR called all things considered. That's their new yeah. show. Right, right. So the conventional side is kind of like, there's all these things and they have a certain amount of truthiness to them. You know, you can make observations about the world and they can be useful. And then on the other side, on ultimate radio, it's like they all don't exactly exist in the way they appear and they don't have the intrinsic thing that you think they have. And it's like both those radio stations are going. Going, They're both going at the same time. Yeah, they're both going at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's two ways of looking at every, every phenomenon. If you look at it with the question of, you know, is is this going to be a good thing for me to sit on? <laughs> there's what there's a practical wisdom question involved there, right? And it's different from the question, what is this really, right? And um, when you when you ask the question, what are these things really, or who am I really, right? And you press on that, right? You're you're looking at the world from an angle of like ultimate analysis, trying to see what the real nature of things are. And in this way, in, in Sankaba's tradition, ultimately you arrive at emptiness, the ungraspability of any of these things, of having any fixed nature of their own. And it's true equally of every single thing, that they're all equally ungraspable. So that's like, you know, all emptiness all the time radio. But you can be looking at exactly the same things and not asking that question. Uh, you know, what is this really? Instead, you ask the question, is this a good thing to sit on? If it turns out to, you know, it's like, well, it seems to be a cat, then maybe the answer is no. But if you were asking, what is the ultimate nature of this? You would find that it was empty and the same would be of the chair and the cat would be equally empty. So this is like why you need to have practical conventional wisdom that allows you to distinguish, you know, what's a good way to act practically in the world in this situation versus what is the level of delusion that's all tangled up with the way I'm interacting with the world and that you need you know all emptiness all the time radios so these two things the conventional nature of things as this and that that we take them for relative to our perspective and they're being empty they're always exactly right there together they're always exactly right there together and there's you can't separate them except you know by talking the way we're talking now. They can't be pulled apart, you know. And some people have like uh, Yasutani Roshi in Three Pillars of Zen talks about it as two sides of a fan. You know, one side has yeah. all these markings on it, and the other side is blank. And it's like, yeah, same fan. But when you look at it in terms of you know all the diversity of appearances and what different things are good for you see one side and when you say what are those things ultimately you know there's an, a non-dual reality and they're not apart from each other except in his example by the thickness of the paper of the fan right mm-hmm. or we, we we say two sides of the same point 
right there in every single object, there's the, the, the ultimate reality side and the conventional side. And the thickness of the coin is exactly zero. Yes, I've thought about this. You can't so pull them apart. Yeah, the two sides to it are really interesting because I think, and one of the things you say is something like, well, you know, if, if you ask the Buddhist philosopher about, uh, you know, a potato, yeah. <laughs> he'll tell you like, uh, it's empty, but to know how to grow a potato, you have to ask a farmer. <laughs> you, it sounds like you've read quite a bit of my work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were my, you were my company, but a lot of my retreats. <laughs> yeah, that article is tucked away. Um, yeah, I had this teacher in India, um, and he, uh, Genlo Sangyatso, at the School of Dialectics in Dharamsala, and this was the kind of way that he talked all the time, you know. And I didn't know what he what it meant, you know. I mean, I understood it's like, yeah, conventional. Conventional is still, you know, you know, you get so far as like he's trying to say that the conventional is important. So somehow the conventional relates to the farmer and not to the philosopher. But what can you know? It's like, what does this really mean? What is the farmer? Is the farmer like actual farmers? And, and you know, and then if you read Tsongkhapa, you know, it's like eventually I figured out right that this is. No, when he says ask a farmer, he means ask the ordinary conventional wisdom that's present in everybody's mind if they're not completely insane, right? And that and the philosopher is the analytical aspect of everybody's mind that can can look deeply into the nature of things. And it, it's not like actual farmers and philosophers because farmers can be philosophers and philosophers can farm. And, and that's like all of us really have the philosophy way of looking at things and the farmer way of looking at things. And we need both. Otherwise we could starve if we don't have the farmer side, right? And then the philosopher side, it's the idea of, well, why do you need that? Because you get in fight with the other farmers about stuff because you don't understand, you know, how things are ultimately empty. Uh, the other one that comes up, <clears throat> I had thrown out the red pill a little bit earlier on, <clears throat> on purpose, yeah. um, you know, the old matrix thing. Yeah. But you know, sometimes we're talking with, with people. Is, which, Red pill is reality. Okay. Red pill is the reality pill. Yeah, I think um, yes. we had this interesting conversation, you know, during the week, uh, guy. We were kind of prepping this up, and I thought, you know, there's a conversation. To what extent do people care about this? And you can see people care about the fact that there's some sense that they have that you know maybe the way the world appears to them isn't exactly how it is, and you know that's the novels of Philip K. Dick or that's the Ooh. Matrix or something. People are interested. Yeah. You know, like maybe the world isn't exactly how it appears to me. Yeah, funny well, that's even Eric. Yeah. That's even like with conspiracy theory people. Oh, that's yeah. true, right? That's I mean, true. even just on a practical level, I would talk about practicality. I think everybody has that idea on some level. Now, the <laughs> the place to which they're placing their attention, and you know, their doubt, their doubts <laughs> misdirected. Yeah. It's yes. so good yes. that you have doubt that your appearances are are correct. You've just been wrong about the kind of doubt. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah. To redirect your doubt. Yes, exactly. Jeffrey, Jeffrey said this one thing one time. He said, like when he was studying with Geshe Wangel in New Jersey, he got into this mindset where he would just go around thinking, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And what he meant was like the appearance of these things that's constantly appearing as though these things are just naturally, objectively there from their own side. That's wrong, right? And I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm used to just assenting without even 
um, stopping to wonder <laughs> whether things exist as they appear. I just assume that they do because automatically assent to it, right? Mm. And that 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 assent, right, is we we're deeply habituated to just taking taking things as they appear, and you know that leads us into trouble. Yeah, the funny thing about the matrix is obviously you can see there's concern about technology taking people over too. So, you know, there's those concerns in those kind of sci-fi worlds, which are legit, right? Yeah. But, you know, the matrix is kind of interesting. I've, I've talked with this about students. You know, there's one particular student I think of, you know, she's just a very bright person. And she went, oh, this sounds like the matrix. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's interesting. But, you know, when you do the matrix analogy, even when Keanu unplugs <laughs> and he's out of the computer world from a Sankapa point of view, he's still in the matrix <laughs> because he just came out to another world that he has to kind of like recognize that that's not imper that's impermanent and is figurative of his mind too. <laughs> right. No, it's true. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, there's, there's, uh, you have to understand it as a parable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't take, you can't understand, take it literally, right? Well, I if think he understands that these things are not as they appear, then this is related to his ability to get power to manipulate the appearances, right? Because he doesn't assume that they're frozen in, in the way they appear to him. It's like, uh, I guess it moves us into, you know, the, the next subject matter. If we're going to talk about Buddha nature a little bit, that was our idea. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Give yeah. that a tumble too. Okay. Um, and I mean, if you look at the matrix thing, I think what people kind of think that Sakapa is different about, but you know, when I see through my superficial appearances, there'll be some other reality that I'll see uh, that'll be concrete and solid and good. And I've gotten uh -huh. out of this fake one and now I'm in the real one. And yeah, so I was like, that one's of, not going to hold up either. <laughs> it kind of sucks though in the Matrix. It's like the, the real world is like kind of ugly and dark. Right? <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Um, mm, yeah. Well, things, um, if, so if we, if we realize emptiness and then we come out of meditating on emptiness and we look around and forms and so forth appear, um, it's, we, they, these things do exist in Tsongkhapa's system. There, there definitely are things here. What's, uh, it's not that emptiness has destroyed the existence of tables and chairs. It's just, it's when we see them in, um, in the after effect of having realized emptiness, we, we don't take them as objectively existing the way they appear. And so what, the, how do they appear then? It's not that they don't appear at all. When you're meditating on emptiness, then everything vanishes except emptiness. So you come out of that meditation and emptiness and you, you're like, oh, I'm gonna have to go to the kitchen and make some food and so forth. So it's like, well, then phenomena appear, but they don't appear in the way they ordinarily appear to us. So one way to think about that is like, if you look in the mirror and it's a clean mirror, there, it vividly appears that there is a person right there. <laughs> but you don't even stop to think, oh my God, what's that person doing in my medicine cabinet? Because you've become completely used to the idea that that's a false appearance and so you don't even worry about it, right? And, and you just use it for what it's useful for without like getting angry at that person in your house, right? And it's like that, I think. The idea is that we, it's, things appear, but we don't take them as having their own objective intrinsic reality anymore. 
we just you know engage with them in ways that's that are useful. That's how I understand it. Yeah, they so, they function or something like that. They function. Right? Yeah, yeah, they function, but we don't. They don't have their own um, objective reality in the way they appear. So there, it's more the the mode of appearance is more like um, it's not the same exactly as a mirror image, but it's like a mirror image or or the way we see things on TV, you know, and we allow ourselves to imagine that those are actually people. <laughs> but then the, we don't actually believe that they're people, right? We have this other layer, it's like that, right? We don't, it's, we don't think they're objectively people, but we, and so there's this kind of, this is called illusion-like appearance. It's not that there aren't people around us, there are people, but they're not people in the way we've taken them to be people. We aren't a person in the way we've taken ourselves to be a person, right? And so that's called illusion-like appearance or illusory appearance. It's not just kind of a shimmery thing you get from an altered state of consciousness. It's an understanding that you get from realizing emptiness. And then when still under the effect of having realized it, you see forms and so forth, and they no longer appear to be objectively set up. Hmm. Well, it's like, uh, I mean, that's a pretty good introduction to emptiness in the Sankapa point of view.